Let's go ahead and open to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. And as you're opening to that, I am going to open us with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening that we do, as a Savior, have the bright and morning star, the lily of the valleys. Lord, no matter what we're going through, we appreciate the fact that you are the light that guides us through it. And Lord, we cannot wait for the day when we're sweeping up to glory to see your blessed face. Father, I'd be perfectly happy if you do not allow me to finish this lesson tonight, but if you could interrupt with that trumpet sound and call us out, God, we would... Oh, Lord, what a day. What a day that'll be. I pray that you please guide us. As long as we are here, Lord, we want to continue to learn more from your word, more about you. Please teach us tonight. Guide us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans 7. Romans 7. And for an outline, I break it down into three parts, verses 1 to 6. We have an example, example in the law. Example in the law. Part 2, verses 7 to 14, the excellence of the law. Excellence of the law. And then for part 3, exceedingly sinful nature. Now listen to the verses on this, verse 7 to 25. Now you'll recognize in part 2 it's 7 to 14, part 3, 7 to 25. There is an overlap where Paul is discussing both the law and why it's a good thing and, and how God intended it to be used. And then we see how sin twisted it. So there's some overlap between the law and the sinful nature in those two parts. All right, so verse number 1, Romans 7, verse 1. Paul says, Know ye not, brethren, and then he gives a parenthesis, for I speak to them that know the law. So he's assuming that this Roman church, even though not primarily Hebrew, they do have a working knowledge of the law. There are people in this congregation that would understand this illustration. Paul is, is going to use the Old Testament in order to illustrate a New Testament truth. This is one of the proper uses of the Old Testament for you and I today. Uh, this isn't, we're not going to cover all the various ways that a Christian should use it. We'll talk about it more in Romans chapter 15. But you can see here that Paul, he's going to give us an illustration about divorce. Now, the, the law that he's going to cover, it meant just what it said. It applied to real-life situations, husbands and wives getting divorced, or what if one of them were to pass away, then what does the law, uh, uh, what is binding for that widow or widower? What do they have to do? And he takes that real-life situation, that literal in interpretation, and then finds a spiritual lesson in it for us as it applies to our salvation. So he says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. So this, this is a very simple thought to begin with. The law, when you go back in the Old Testament, it applies to people that are alive. Once you die, then the law is no more uh, affecting you. Now that seems like a very simple point. But remember, keep this in the back of your mind as we read verses 2 and 3. Part of you, we learned this last week, part of you, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, part of you died. 
That old man was crucified and buried, dead and buried. And we have to now think of, of part of ourselves as being dead and gone. What, what does the Bible uh, instruct us to do under such situations? Well, the law is no longer binding for somebody that is dead. So that's why Paul is pointing out what seems to be a very obvious truth. Let me say one more thing about verse 1. The law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Do you remember last week, back in, if, if you made notes next to the verses, chapter 6, verse 14, we explained the two systems, right? We had law, sin, death. We had grace, righteousness, life. Remember those two categories? Well, look at verse 1, the law hath dominion. You see that? Look back at chapter 6, verse 9. Death no, hath no more dominion over him. Look at verse 14, chapter 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you see the three things mentioned? Law, sin, death. Paul's giving this illustration to show that we're no longer under that system. Because part of us died, the law no longer applies. We are under a different system. Verse 2. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. As long as the husband's alive, she can't just go marry somebody else. Now, if the husband has passed away, she is free to remarry. That was the straightforward teaching of the Old Testament law. It applied to everyday, practical, real-life situations when a spouse would die. What's interesting, you go back in the Old Testament and you look at the word nephesh, which is the Hebrew word for soul. It's a feminine noun. And there are verses in the Old Testament. and I know there's one in Jeremiah 12 and some other places are slipping my mind at the moment, but where the word soul in English now is referred to as her. It has that feminine pronoun that goes with it. That's, it's a feminine word, the soul. Well, if you think about it this way, your body and your soul were stuck together before you got saved, right? And when you got saved, there was a, spir a spiritual circumcision that took place and separated the body and the soul. And the body was baptized, uh, the, the old man rather, it was put into death and buried. Now your soul is free. In verse number 3, So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So obviously the man that's passed away, the law is no longer binding on him. But also this woman is now free. So look at how this applies in two different ways. The flesh, that, that old man, not physically, mind you, but we're talking about a spiritual scenario. The old man, that sinful nature, dead and buried. And we need to apply that truth daily. But that means our soul is now free. Now, the spirit, the human spirit, it resides inside of the soul. And so often these two things, they appear to be interchangeable simply because they do go together, but they are two separate things. We know this because in Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says that the sword of the Spirit, it can, it can pierce and divide asunder the soul and spirit. Those are two different things. But the Spirit resides within the soul.
So when the old man is dead and buried, the, new, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into us, takes our dead spirit, which is dead unto God, and joins it to Jesus Christ, right? So now I have a new man inside of me. I have a new union, which is legal because first there was a death. My first marriage was bad. I was stuck to that body of sin. And now, now that he's out of the way, dead and buried, I can be joined to Christ. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man. Notice it does not say in verse 3, while her ex-husband liveth, she be married to another man. I know a lot of people that turn to this passage to show that if, if two people get divorced, that they cannot remarry as long as the other person is still alive. There is no divorce mentioned in Romans 7 verses 1 to 5. We're not dealing with a case where the, one of the other stepped out. We're talking about two people, alive and married, and then as long as they're both alive and married, you, you can't just go off and marry another person. But if one of them passes away, then you can. It's very straightforward. We need not add divorce into the passage. So verse number 3 at the end, it says, She should be called an adulteress, but if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. My, my spirit can be joined to Christ. My soul can be part of this union. It's perfectly legit because the first husband, the body of flesh, has been put aside, buried. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. What's he getting at? When you were baptized into his body, there was a spiritual process in Colossians 2, Verse 13, it's called the faith of the operation of God. That operation began to take place wherein the old man was removed, the body of sins, dead and buried, and the Spirit joined uh, to, to Jesus. He says, You're become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. This is the proper expectation of a marriage. Two people get married and then there is reproduction that happens in due time. They bring forth fruit. Uh, verse number five, for when we were in the flesh, now that is before we were saved, so you're, you're stuck to the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law, the law instigated it, not in that the law was bad, but because of our sinful nature, inclined to rebelling against God. When it saw what God wanted, it, it purposely goes the other direction. It purposely leans the other way. So it's not that the law was wrong. It's upright. It's good. But our sinful nature, it kicked off this, it put into motion uh, what sin does. It says, The motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. We, we, the Bible says, we're children of wrath. We were children of hell. And when we got our way as lost people, the end of it, right? We might have enjoyed it in the moment, but the end of those things were death. Um, 
Let me say a couple things about the motions of sins. Notice the plural. There's multiple parts uh, to how the sinful nature works and how we go about committing sins. If you'd like the theological term, this is called the doctrine or the process of peccability. Peccability. Which, if something is impeccable, then it's perfect. It, and, and it's incorruptible. But if it's peccable, that means it is capable of sin and depravity and, and things going wrong. So this is the process of peccability. We, or we can just say this is how sin works if you wanted to be very practical about it. All right, so let me give you the, the well, actually six steps to this. And isn't that interesting? Six in the Bible is the number of a man. So this is how men go about life. Number one, presentation. Whenever somebody sins, it always begins first with the presentation of some sort of opportunity, right? It, it's, there is a, an opportunity made known to you, the presentation. The chance to sin shows up. Number two, illumination. So there it is, the chance pops up, and then I take a long look at it and I say, well, what is this all about? And I, and I ask questions, I look into the matter, and I get illuminated as to what I'm dealing with. Number three, contemplation. Presentation, illumination, contemplation. Now I begin to weigh it out, pros and cons. All right, if I do it, then this will happen. If I don't do it, then this will happen. If I do it, so-and-so will be happy. This person will be sad. If I don't do it, and we begin to weigh things out. And it's right there that the sinful nature really begins to kick in. Right? Because it, you've seen this illustrated different ways with a little angel on one side and a little devil on the other. You know? You've seen that in cartoons. But you're going to enjoy it, but you won't enjoy it. And then it goes back and forth like that. Contemplation. Number four, decision. Presentation, illumination, contemplation, decision. Now you make a choice. This is when sin actually happens. Now you have sinned. You have decided in your heart, I'm going to do that. Before you even get to the doing of it, remember Jesus said evil proceeds from within. Out of the heart comes all these evil things. So the decision. Number five, action. Once you've decided, you actually go and do and follow through on those evil intentions that you've contemplated and decided on. And then number six, the final step in this process is death. That is where it's going to end you. Now, when I say death, I, this is the thought that escaped my mind last week. So I'm going to take just a few moments and, and uh, cover it this week. We, we need to discuss a little more in depth what we mean by death because you know as well as I, death can apply in, in various ways in, in the Bible. We're going to see tonight Romans 7, when somebody for the very first time in their life decides to sin willingly, knowing what they're doing, right? They know it's wrong, but do it anyway. Then they die spiritually. There's a spiritual death. Now you and I as saved people, we have been joined to the Lord. Uh, you remember this verse, yes? 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Right? And the Bible says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. By the way, that's the attendance code for tonight. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. 
We have been joined to the Lord, and what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I, I do not believe that we can be torn apart from Christ. This union is an everlasting binding union. You say, but what about us? Can we still experience death? Well, I will say this, and we'll, we'll see it in Romans 8 as well. He that lives after the flesh shall die. You can face physical problems. There could be physical punishments, sickness, and, and eventually death. You can reach an early physical demise because you keep yielding to the old man. Uh, so that's one way to understand death. But there's another side to it. Just quickly turn uh, maybe one page back or two pages. Look at Romans 4, verse 19. Romans 4, verse 19. It says, And being not weak in faith, he, that's Abraham, considered not his own body, now dead. What, what does he mean, now dead? Abraham was still alive when he was considering this. He considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was barren, unable to have children. So this is another way to think about deadness, is that you are not bringing forth fruit, barren. Um, hold your place in Romans. Flip over to 2 Peter real quick and look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this along with me, please. 2 Peter 1. Let's start reading in verse number 5. 2 Peter 1 and verse 5. It says here, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now we're going to read about Christian growth here. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. That's self-control. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. Verse 7. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. So these things are to pile up in your life. You're, you're to add these things to your faith. That is a, a brief list of what spiritual growth looks like. Verse 8, notice carefully what he says. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren, Romans 4, nor unfruitful, you see how those go together, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say, well, Pastor, what if I don't abound in those various things that were just listed? Then it's, it's not that you lose that union with Christ. It's, it's not that you lose your salvation. What happens is you don't bear the fruit that should come from that union. And in that sense, there is a deadness to your spiritual life. If you want to think about it very practically, right? God is life. He's the source of life. So if you're not close in fellowship, then you are not experiencing that abundant life. And you are if you're not if you're not appreciating and experiencing life, then there is a bit of deadness to that. Again, it's not that you've lost salvation. You have eternal life, but you are not uh, enjoying the manifest blessings of it. So that can also be considered a deadness. Uh, notice verse 9 in that same passage, 2 Peter 1, 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He'll start to doubt, where am I going to go when I die? And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Do you see that? So he begins to doubt his own salvation because he has no outward evidence 
of the faith that he professes to have. So this is why building, building up your faith and being edified, growing, being rooted, established, and all of that that we've been looking in, at Colossians, and we've looked at it in Galatians as well. This spiritual growth is of the utmost importance so that we have outward evidence that gives us assurance and it'll minister to others at the same time. Come to Revelation chapter 20 and let me show you another aspect of death. Now, I've been talking about saved people. You can experience a, a death before your time, physical death before your scheduled departure from the earth. You can read about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I believe. And then you can have a deadness in that you don't bear fruit. But what about a lost man? Well, the motions of sins, when he first or she first decides to do something wrong, spiritual death takes place within. But if they never get born again, regenerated, then the Bible says in Revelation 20 verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. By the way, if you're saved, you're in the body of Christ, you have a promise that you will be part of that resurrection. Look at what it says. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. So for a lost man, there is a spiritual death. His life doesn't bring forth any fruit unto God as a result of this spiritual death. Obviously, there's no union with God. So how can he bring forth fruit to God? And then ultimately, he's going to face the second death, which is an eternal death, whereupon a soul is, is cast into the lake of fire. All right, so come back to Romans chapter 7. Let's continue on here. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that entire system, that being, that being dead, wherein we were held. You were held. You were stuck to it. That's the body of sin. That we should serve in newness of spirit. The spirit is the part of you that got born again or regenerated. And not in the oldness of the letter. So we serve according to what God is doing on the inside. We do not serve God by following the Old Testament law letter by letter. See? Verse 7, what shall we say then? Now again, Paul is going to caution the reader about going too far with the point that he just made. If you were to stop the chapter right there, somebody might be tempted to say, well, it sounds like the law is a bad thing. It sounds like if we just got rid of the law, then sin wouldn't have any, any hold on us, right? Because it starts with the law, and then we rebel against it, and on it goes from there. So Paul's going to take a few verses now and discuss that the law was not the problem. The problem is us. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Are those two things synonymous? God forbid, of course not. That's not the point he's making. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. Now notice, I had not known sin. I'll give you a good cross-reference for this. Romans 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 20. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I wouldn't know what sin was if there wasn't a standard first to go by. Now, bear in mind, for most people, I believe this is true. I, I can't think of any exceptions to this, to be honest with you. We first recognize the moral law that lives within our hearts, right? That God is has encoded in every human being. We first recognize that before we ever understand a written law that was revealed by God to the nation of Israel. That, that's something that we learn generally as, as time goes on. But we start as, at a young age to recognize that this is good, this is bad. This is morally good, morally evil. Now, for everybody, it's different as to what age that that knowledge uh, becomes clear to them. We, we call it the age of accountability. Everybody's different on that. I, I've met people in their teens that really, I, am, I was convinced that they did not understand the difference. They, they didn't, they just, it didn't sink in for whatever reason. So everybody's different on that. But once you understand this is morally evil and this is why, if I do this, it is it's offensive to man, it's offensive to God, and He doesn't like it. Now, I know that, I know that because there's a law written, right? But I also know it because something in my heart tells me, if you do that, trouble's waiting for you. Now, now let's keep going in verse 7. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So Paul's growing up. And as he's growing up, he struggles with lust. And morally, before he's old enough to go study the law himself, right? he knows, man, this just doesn't feel right. When, it, when he sits down and begins to study the law, he says, you know what, now I see. Now I know why I felt so bad every time I started to desire those things. He said, now I understand how bad lust is. The law has pointed out to me where my sinful nature is going wrong. So he says in verse 8, but sin, we would, I, I would expand on that say the sinful nature, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me, worked in me, all manner of concupiscence. That's a big fancy word we don't use much anymore. It simply means lusts, however, Concupiscence, it, it goes a little further than lust. It is a longing for the forbidden. It's a little bit darker than just the normal use of the word lust. He says at the end of verse 8, For without the law, sin was dead. So in Paul's case, right, he's growing up. He has this moral compass. And that leads him to go study the law. And as he's looking at the law and it says, Thou shalt not covet, he says, Man, now it all comes together. I, I, that's what God expects. And then right about that time, his sinful nature woke up. It was laying dormant in him. But when that full understanding of what God expects hit Paul and it sunk in, then that sinful nature said, Mm-hmm. You know, God said, don't do that. God said, don't desire those things. But boy, wouldn't it be sweet if you had it? And you can see what happened in verse 9. For I was alive without the law once. See, Before he made that conscious decision to fulfill those lusts, 
he, his spirit was alive. But as soon as he chose to do what was wrong, knowing that it was wrong, right? The law had made that clear to him. Once he chose to do something wrong, the Bible says, but when the commandment came, a full understanding of it, sin revived, that sinful nature awoke, and I died. So upon making the decision to do something wrong, Paul's spirit died. Now this links back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Right? When you read Genesis 2, God said, Don't eat from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden of, of Eden. Um, it, it was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, as soon as it, and God told them, the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. Now some people have found problems with that because they say they ate the fruit, they didn't die that day. Adam lived, you know, 930 years, so he, he didn't die the same day he ate it. Yeah, he did die. He did. He just didn't die physically. He died spiritually. Right? Same way Paul uses it here. Sin revived. The sinful nature woke up and said, Hey, there's, there's a law I can rebel against. Now that you understand what's at stake, let me get you to rebel. And Paul died spiritually, dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 10, And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now, we understand it. You, you can't just take verse 10 by itself as a complete commentary about the purpose of the law, the commandment which was ordained to life. Did God give the commandments so that by following the commandments we could achieve eternal life? Well, no, the, the commandments by themselves can't do that. Paul made that clear, right? In Galatians 3, we studied this already. We looked at it in, in many places, in Romans as well. We've seen that. The law can't give life, but the law is a schoolmaster that points us and brings us to Christ. So it was ordained. It was set up. God put it in place so that it would escort people and point them to where they could find life ultimately. So the law did serve that purpose. It was ordained to get a person to the life source. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now, again, it's, it's the sinful nature that led that person off the path that God intended. In verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, it, it saw its chance, deceived me, and by it slew me. So my sinful nature took something that was good and upright, holy, just, spiritual, and it deceived me. Sin deceived me. Sin told me, man, if you do this, you will get away with it. Come on, man. One little, one little sin? That's not a big deal. God, God's not going to kill somebody just for eating a piece of fruit. You're not going to die. Right? Doesn't that go right back to Genesis 3? Isn't that exactly what the devil told Eve? The day you eat thereof, you'll not surely die. He said, you're not going to die. You're just going to have the knowledge. You're going to be as God's knowing good and evil. Exactly. Yeah, that conscience is going to wake up. And now instead of depending on what God said as your standard for righteousness, you are going to take on complete responsibility for deciding right and wrong based on your own conscience, which whew, 
That's the problem. We can't, we can't even follow our own conscience, let alone what God said. Verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. He says the, the law is not the problem. Holy, just, and good. You look at what God said to do under the law. All of those laws were upright and good. They would lead to a, a clean, productive life, a clean, productive society even. In verse 13, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. Paul said, now let's not go there. Let's not say that it was the law that killed me. It wasn't the law. But sin, that it might appear sin. So what the law does is it, it puts a spotlight on what the real problem is and what the real solution is. The real problem is you. Your sinful nature rebelling against what God desires. And the only way to be free of this is Jesus Christ. So the law does a good job of, of manifesting the problem and the answer, the curse and the cure. He says, But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. So sin, because it's deceitful, it used something good to achieve its evil purpose that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So we, because we have access to the revealed Word of God, we can see just how far off the mark our sinful nature can take us. We can compare ourselves and see how we measure up, which the very definition of sin means to miss the mark. So that, that's what we do. We see just how exceedingly far away we've strayed from God. Bob Jones Sr., he was the man who, uh, he was the head instructor of the Bible school where Dr. Ruckman went way, way back in the day. Bob Jones Sr. had a lot of um, great little sayings. And one of those sayings was this. He said, every bad thing in this world is a good thing twisted. Let me say it again. Every bad thing in this world is a good thing twisted. And that holds true. In, in verse 13, the law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's, we're going to see just now, it's spiritual. But sin gets a hold of it and perverts it and twists it and uses it to get us off the mark. Verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual. How can it be spiritual, right? He, up there in verse number 6, he said, We serve a newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. There's so many places where the Old Testament law is like, it's, it's almost contrary to the Spirit of God. It's used as like two separate sides, two polarized sides of an argument. How can the law be spiritual? It was provided by God. Right? It, it, was, it was given through the Holy Spirit to Moses for the nation of Israel that... It is spiritual because of its origin. The law is spiritual. But again, the problem, verse 14, But I am carnal, sold under sin. Now let me uh, take this opportunity to point something out. There are some Bible commentators and pastors that, that teach verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. They say that Paul is explaining... Well, you know, forgive me. I'm going to say the, the entire last portion 
the, the entire second half of this chapter. They say Paul is discussing his life as a lost man. Right? So they, when we get down to like verse 15, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. They say that applies to Paul's unsaved life. So you get to verse 18. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. They say that's Paul as an unsaved man. Um, I'm not going to spend a long time trying to explain how they arrive at that position. Let me just say that in verse 14, but I am carnal. Paul didn't say, but I was carnal. But now, now that I'm saved, I'm spiritual. He, he said, but I am carnal. This is a present tense situation. When Paul writes Romans 7, he's talking about what's going on right now. Now, if you want the past tense, you get verse 9. I was alive without the law once. And then he explains how he died spiritually. And he explained the process, but then get to verse 14. We're back into the present tense. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am, present tense, carnal. He's a saved man, but he realizes that he still has an old nature. But I am carnal, sold under sin. He said that body of sin, that fleshly nature, that depravity, it's still there. And it still gives me problems, right? It can still create a temporary bondage in my life. Remember last week we talked about this in chapter 6, verse 16. To whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. So if you yield to the flesh temporarily, that's your master, right? Not ultimately, but temporarily, you're allowing sin to have dominion. And Paul recognizes that in himself. Let, let me give you another verse where Paul admits this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus is come, uh, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Not I was chief. I am chief. Paul says, even now I still struggle mightily with sin. It's not that Paul was busy committing habitual sin and purposely doing those things. Paul recognized that every day the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Right? The flesh lusteth against. That is, it desires one thing and the spirit desires something else and those desires are completely contrary. So what we read in Galatians 5, right? I just quoted part of verse 17, it goes perfectly with what we're looking at in Romans 7. In verse number 15, For that which I do, I allow not. Paul says, I can't justify every action that I take. I, I admit that there are moments, Paul says, that I, I don't do uh, what I should. He says, For what I would, that do I not. Haven't you ever found yourself in that position? Haven't you ever made wonderful plans while you're sitting in church or in Bible school and you hear the lesson, you hear the sermon, and you think, you know what, that's it, man. I, I need to do that. As soon as I get home, I'm going to put that into practice. And as soon as you get home, 20 other things happen. Somebody else brings a problem. This, this breaks and something else goes wrong. And all of a sudden, the thing that you would, you do not. It says at the end of verse 15, but what I hate, that do I. You know, when I first got saved, I knew I was a wicked sinner. I knew that. 
I didn't need to be convinced really. I tried to talk myself out of it, tried to encourage myself, but I, I knew, I knew. But you know what I found? After I got saved, and I was glad that I was washed in the blood and all my sins are gone, but then I started reading the Bible. And then I started really seeing just how sinful I was. Sin appeared exceeding sinful, and the more I grew in my knowledge of the Bible, the more I grew in appreciation for how much Jesus loved me in that He, when I realized just how far off the path I had strayed, to what great lengths He had to go to save me, it, it, it helps me grow in my appreciation for salvation. I don't, I don't mean to say that you need to go on a, a warpath tonight beating yourself up and talking about how bad you are. But it is true, after you get saved, you begin to read the Bible and you do find out just how great God is and how bad you are. Verse 16, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. The law is fine, I'm the problem. Verse 17, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now notice how he has separated. He says, it's not me doing it, it's sin. Well now, you can see as the passage goes on, there's this back and forth. Paul says, there's a part of me that wants to do right. And then there's a part of me that wants to do wrong. We're going to see it clearly as we go on. Verse 17, now that it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth, present tense, present tense, dwelleth in me. Verse 18, for I know that in me, parentheses, that is, in my flesh. Now, read the verse without the parentheses. For I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. Now, see, that would be a false statement. That would be a lie. Because in me dwells the Holy Spirit. In me dwells eternal life. I have the Word of God hidden in my heart. There's a lot of good things in me. But when you factor in the parentheses, it becomes a very true, clear, helpful statement. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Amen. For to will is present with me. I have a desire to do right. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. If I could just get all these good intentions to actualize, you know, to actuate them, if I could see them happen, that'd be great. Paul says, there's a part of me that, that wants to do it. Now, I believe that the will of a man is part of his soul. I believe it's one of the functions of a soul. So when, when Paul says, for to will is present with me, in my soul, right? I, I want to do right. I can feel the work of the Holy Spirit. I know that Jesus is in there, and I know that ultimately He's my Lord, and I want to make Him happy. But then when I get into the moment... Man, the flesh can really, really cause problems. Verse 19, I've often said that this should be on my headstone whenever I die. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. That, you know, it's a shame, but I think that sums up life so well, right? The good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. So the good things I want to do, I can't. The bad things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. That just 
<laughs> that so adequately describes how, how we often feel. Verse 20, Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Again, he's, he's separating these two parts, the old man and the new man. Verse 21, I find then a law. Now, he says, I find a law. What, when we talk about a law, right, like I've mentioned this before, the law of gravity, it's how gravity works. It's how a thing operates. The law of Christ, we read in Galatians 6.2, it's how Christ lived his life. How did he operate? Paul says, so I, I, when I study myself and I see my old nature at work and I see my new nature at work, the old man, the new man, I find a law, a system. This is how this operates. This is how that operates. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He says, that's how it works. That's how it operates. Is when I want to do good, sin is right there. My old man, evil, it's just going to bombard me and try to get me off the path. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. You see that? Comparison, inward man. Verse 23, But I see another law in my members, in the body, warring, it's a spiritual war, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Can I ask you to let your eyes travel down to Romans 8, verse 2? I just want to show you how Paul refers to these two laws. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So again, there's those two systems. The law of sin and death, that's how it operates. And the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Two separate operations going on. We, we have both operating in us because in my flesh I have that sinful nature. But in my soul and in my spirit there's that new nature. The law of the Spirit working. And they're warring. They're constantly butting heads. Now, in verse 22, when he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, obviously he's not talking about uh, rejoicing in living under an Old Testament system. Some people read it like that, saying, in the, because I'm saved, now I have a desire to keep the Old Testament laws. I, del I delight in those laws. When you use the phrase law of God, that is how God operates. Another way to say it is the law of the Spirit, how the Holy Spirit works in me. So delighting in the law of God after the inward man, I am delighted to see God in control in my heart. I want the kingdom of God, right? That is God ruling from the throne of my heart. I want that to operate in me. So that's the law of God that he's referring to here. He's not talking about an Old Testament written set of rituals and, and regulations. Verse 23, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Now notice that the connection, inward man, your mind, your soul, your spirit, all of that uh, will overlap. And it says, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. As I mentioned uh, I've, I've talked about it tonight. I mentioned it last week. The old nature, when you yield to it, temporarily there is bondage. Temporarily that sinful nature is your master. That, and that's how it can bring you into captivity. This is where 
some people, they start off well, they have faith in Christ, they begin to grow, 2 Peter 1. They start to add a little bit, but then they stop. They stop growing. They stop making an effort. And what happens is they become barren, they, they don't have any fruit, and then they start to forget about how God saved them. They go spiritually blind. They can't see afar off. And, and what happens is they begin, to, they begin to look at their temporary situation and it makes them wonder, man, am I even saved? People ask, can a Christian still get messed up with habitual sin? As I mentioned last week, and I think this is a decent time to say it again, it can happen. It shouldn't. And if it does happen, that person is going to doubt his or her salvation. And even you and I, standing back watching that person's life, even we would doubt and say, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe you weren't sincere when you gave your heart to Christ or whatever, the, however you want to phrase that. We would have a, a good reason to doubt it. But it doesn't prove that that person has, has never been saved. It, it, it could be that they were saved and, and they've just given in to the flesh and they're finding it hard to get out of that captivity. Verse 24, look, look at what Paul said. Maybe the best Christian in the history of mankind. Look at what he said. Oh, wretched man that I am, with an exclamation mark. Do you see that? Oh, wretched man that I am. Wretched, miserable. That's what he means. Miserable. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Man, I, I can't get away from my ex. <laughs> the old man died, but he still keeps coming back and bothering me. Who shall deliver me? Verse 25, he gives the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knows where he's going to get victory. Not only victory on a daily, temporary basis, right? While we're on the earth. But ultimate victory. One of these days, through the resurrection, I get a brand new body. And that glorified body will be free of the sinful nature. It will be incorruptible and undefiled. It will not have a sinful nature. And I will never again have a wrong thought, a wrong desire, say a wrong word. I won't have to stop and think about, hey, am I saying it right, doing it right? It will be right. So I thank God. And now that's the ultimate change. But even on a daily basis, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I can overcome this body of death, this sinful nature, it can be overcome daily by yielding to the work of the Spirit, to the operation of the Spirit within me. Verse 25, here's the two natures again. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. I'm going to yield to what God wants me to do, to the way He's working in my life. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Do you see how... It's not that Paul is just giving up on this battle and saying, you know what, forget it. There's a part of me that's just going to love God. And there's a part of me that's just going to hate God and love sin. And eh, nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to let the sin go. That, obviously, that's not what he's saying. But he recognizes that as long as his flesh is still alive, then it's going to contain that sinful nature. And he knows he's going to struggle with it until this body gets completely fixed. And that's something we're going to discuss 
maybe next week if we get time. Uh, in, in Romans 8 verse 23, we'll look at the redemption of our body and how this is going to get fixed. Romans 8 is one of the most fascinating chapters, I believe, in the entire Bible, so we are certainly not going to rush through that chapter. We'll take our time. But we're going to stop there for tonight. We've reached the end of chapter 7. Uh, if you guys have any questions about it, the comment section has been working, I see, uh, throughout the lesson. So I am going to close us with a word of prayer. But after I pray, if I see a question in the comment section, then I will answer it to the best of my ability. Uh, but if you would rather send me a, a question through an email or a WhatsApp, please feel free to contact me anytime at your convenience, and I'll do the best I can to help you out. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you this evening for this honest chapter. My goodness, Paul, not too many men of his stature would admit the things that he admitted. But Lord, it's just an honest statement. It's an honest description of, of how our lives are. And God, we are thankful tonight that even though this body of sin creates so much misery and frustration in our lives, we have great hope that you will help us daily to overcome every temptation. Lord, you, when you taught the disciples to pray, you told them to pray, lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Lord, help us. Show us how to avoid those sinful situations. Help us to live a life that's pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful day spending time with you, your people, and in your word. And I pray that your hand might be upon them. All the people that have tuned in tonight that are listening to this lesson, please, Lord, let the seed fall deep into the ground. Bring forth fruit. Bring us back ready to learn more this uh, Tuesday evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't see any other questions that have come through, so I hope you guys have a great evening. And uh, Lord willing, you'll see me on Tuesday.